Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There are few people in the sporting world as connected as Bart Campbell, and he's kind of hard to define. Entrepreneur probably fits, deal maker definitely, trusted friend, mentor, all of the above. But at the same time, so much more. And what are the philosophies that have helped make him so successful? His leadership principles, the basics he goes back to when times get tough, we're about to find out. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. Bart Campbell has just stepped down as chairman of the Melbourne Storm while remaining a part owner and has just stepped up as New Zealand's representative on the board of World Rugby. He loves sport and the business of sport. He's seen the lows and he's savoured the highs. He's a leader himself and has worked with some of the best the sporting world has ever seen. And 34 to 6 seems definite now as the final score. Champion players, champion club. Melbourne wins another one. Bart Campbell's beloved Melbourne Storm winning the 2017 NRL Grand Final. Bart, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. We're going to talk uh, some rugby league shortly, but I want to start with what was really a first foray into the business of sport, athlete management. And it was a a family connection that got you started. Your brother-in-law, former All Black Tabai Matson. As I understand it, you did his contract and and from then the opportunities flowed. Thanks for having me, Nick. Basically, there was a two-and-a-half-year lag between doing Tabs' this contract with New Zealand Rugby in, in uh, 1995 and, and me turning up in London at the end of, of 1997. Then in 1998, a bunch of players, uh, it, you know, just said, well, look, you're over there. Um, you know, would you mind having a look at, at for some work for us? And I was working as a lawyer for an investment bank and sort of making phone calls by lunchtime and evenings to clubs. And... Again, you know, right place, right time. What I, I, there was a, a cheesy thing called ANSLA, which I believe still exists, which is the Australian New Zealand Sports Law Association, of which I was a member. And this chap, his name is Warren Alcock, he's kind of like the doyen of sports lawyers in New Zealand. Um, I reached out to him, uh, and he'd been one of my lecturers at law school, a chap called David Howman, who ended up becoming um, chief exec of WADA and uh, also a lawyer called David Jones in Auckland. So Warren Alcock was in Dunedin, David Jones uh, in Auckland, and David Howman in Wellington. And I basically reached out to them and said, look, you guys basically look after all the All Blacks. 
you know me, I am semi-competent and <laughs> mostly trustworthy and I'm over here. So if any of your clients want to come to Europe and they want someone to you know, negotiate contracts in real time and look after them when they get over here, bear me in mind. And then, and then kind of, you know, things change. So, um, you know, people like Zinzan Brook came over, um, Ian Jones, Josh Cromfeld, you know, sort of through these guys. And I was the, I guess, the man on the ground. Uh, and, and then off the back of that, you know, I picked up a bunch of the Scottish team. And at Easter uh, of 1999, I jumped out of working full time uh, as a lawyer and started my own little shop. And um, yeah, so from Easter of 99 until uh, the end of 2013, I sort of worked and, and, and ran that business um, until I shifted down to Oz. So that would have been a, a great time with the game of rugby turning professional to uh, to be at the pointy end of that that uh, situation. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, and no one knew what they were doing too, which suited my strengths. Um, you know, the clubs didn't know what value was. The players didn't know what value was. And, you know, we, we just winged it really and, and did the best that we could for our clients um you know as they are today high-end all blacks were, were in demand i mean i mentioned a bunch of names here before i guess the the difference really between now and then you know zinzan brook was 32 ian jones was 32 greg dow was 33 i think uh josh cromfeld had just crossed 30 so you know a lot of these guys were coming towards the end of their career and wanted a rugby experience somewhere else uh, before hanging up the boots. Um, yeah, so it looked fascinating time, loved every minute of it, and um, yeah, I wouldn't change it for anything. Now, I've spoken to uh, a couple of people who've known you for a long time, and they say that loyalty is one of your best qualities, but, but also that you have time for people, that you're always a good listener. How important are those qualities in leadership, and, and what are some of the other qualities that, uh, that good leaders show? Look, um, I think they're both really important qualities in leadership, uh, particularly um, the ability to, to listen. I think loyalty is a, is a life skill. Um, I'm not sure it's necessary a leadership lesson, um, but you know, I think as a style, loyalty is fundamentally important to me. I think I wrote down a bunch of things that I think are, are important to any sensible leader. So I think this is the new me as opposed to me when I started out, but you've got to empower your people. I was a chronic micromanager at the start, but over time when your businesses grow and they get too big that you can't do everything, so you just got to let go. You just got to focus on being the right people to do the right jobs. You got to give them confidence. You got to give them a plan. You got to give them the freedom to go and achieve that plan. Um, I think you got to be proactive around that. And um, I think for me, I like to try and demonstrate that I'm, I'm ripping in as well. So I think hard work is a really important and, and underutilized asset. Um, there's a bit of sort of um, cheesy management speak um, at Simon Sinek, and he wrote about the two greatest motivational tools for humans. One is inspiration and one is manipulation. So, you know, for me, effort is really important. Providing a positive work environment for your people is really important. You've got to have some fun. Uh, you know, you've got to celebrate the wins and you've got to, uh, you know, get over the losses. And so, you know, and that's true of life as a sport. So, yeah, I think those are things that I've tried to do. One thing I've learned out of the storm, and I do this very, very well, is the absolute commitment to continual improvement. Um, you know, none of us are the finished article. And we've got to keep refining. You've got to get your base skills nailed. Then you've got to keep refining and refining them. So within that, 
trying new things is important. Fail often, fail fast, and adopt, learn, and take on board the things that work. Um, and then really, uh, yeah, as I said to you, effort matters for me, you know. Uh, so if I can inspire people through my own effort, then I've done a good job. And, and you know, the one thing I do pride myself on is that I've got a reasonable work ethic. Your leadership must have uh, attracted or been attractive to a, a number of people over the years because you've you've managed, or you and your companies have managed, uh, really the who's who of uh, sports people. Michael Liner, Ian Botham, Richie McCaw, Dan Carter, um, as well as a number of other All Blacks. I think you've you've dipped your toe into Major League Baseball uh, as well over time, and and AFL as well. I mean, what is it that's attracted all of that talent, or did attract all of that talent? Uh, to your managerial skills? Good people. I mean, you know, there's a saying in New Zealand, hey tangara, hey tangara, hey tangara. It's the people, the people, the people. And that's how you do good things, right? You find good people and you put them into an environment where they can thrive. Uh, And so, look, you know, part of the things that we've done in sport is we've tried to, I guess, provide scale to the agency business, which means aggregating people into a structure, which is not necessarily the natural habitat for lots of A-type agents. But if you can provide an environment for them where they thrive, where you take stuff off them that they don't really want to do, they don't want to do the accounts, they don't want to do the back office, they just, you know, um, then you and point them in the right direction and let them loose to do what they're good at. They can achieve really good things. I mean, as it relates to Major League Baseball, I really enjoyed uh, my time in Major League Baseball. And the thing I liked about it was the rigor. You know, being an American sport, it is overanalyzed within an inch of its life. And, you know, the numbers don't lie. You know, the stats don't lie. And so, you know, we had four guys with sort of masters or doctorates in mathematics in a basement because they're not allowed to see natural light, just (laughs) crunching data. And so that when they would go and pitch to a client, they would provide an 80-page statistical rationale as to why that person was undervalued versus their peers. Why And then when they go to negotiate these people, that same level of rigor is applied. So I really like baseball. I learned a lot out of it. And, you know, it feels to me a bit like in rugby, particularly we just, how much? And, um, you know, you know, there are a lot of things we could take out of the, of the US landscape. Some good, some bad, and the bad ones are clearly to be avoided. Yeah, right. That, that, is, that is fascinating that they go that deep. Um, have you in a more local sense, tried to, you know, institute or did you try and institute that over the years, that that sense of rigour? Yeah, look, I think one of the things we've been successful at in the storm is the, I guess, the greater reliance on stats and, and data. Look, we don't, we don't um, overlay that against the super coach as well because Craig Bellamy's earned the right to, to have a view. But we do use it to shape choices and to narrow the field and to put, you know, uh, players in front of him for his decision making that are based on real rigor. But what are the, some of the lessons or, or, or some of the advice that you've had to give uh, players over the years in terms of, you know, big money offers compared to perhaps, um, you know, the advantage of loyalty to, towards a club? Those sort of things have to be dealt with all the time as a manager, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my, my view is that there is real benefit to athletes post-career in on-field success. So if you're at a team where you've won a championship and you've got a team that's got a championship window for the next year, 
the value in staying there and having a crack at winning another title uh, exceeds um, some, and not, not infinite amount, but some material value in taking more money and going to a team at the other end of the table. And so, you know, along the way, I've tried to encourage people because it's my belief, and, and, and obviously players do see this now, that the most important things that they will cherish when their boots are in the cupboard and their career is over is the trophy system. Those are the things that stand out, you know, the, the moments when you win under pressure, under real duress. And, and it's also that moment that endears you to the fans and those fans are the people that provide you with opportunity in life after football. So... I think I touched upon Richie McCaw, who for me kind of epitomises that. I know he's unique, but one team, one town, 148 tests, never left the country, never threatened to leave the country. You know, the world is his oyster in New Zealand. He's New Zealand's most trusted person. Uh, he stands for the views that New Zealanders have of themselves. And, um, you know, that will be a wonderful thing that, you know, that's not to say that's the only way to do it, but there is a payback to athletes for sticking with the club and seeing it through. So I think that needs to be factored into their decision-making. Your businesses over the years um, have worked with uh, the IRB, uh, New Zealand Rugby Union, Welsh Rugby, Rugby League World Cup, the ECB, London Olympics, British and Irish Lions. I mean, it's it's an incredible list. It, it almost blows your mind to, to think the organisations and the events that you've been involved in. Is it fair to say that reputation and integrity is a vital component when you get to that that level of the sporting world yeah i mean look at the end of the day um when you're seeking clients of that ilk they have choice and uh you know therefore the reputation of your firm is fundamentally fundamentally important and the reputation of your people that working on those accounts is fundamentally important so yeah i've been very very spoiled um and you know along the way i've had some wonderful experiences and Again, I go back to people, you know, without the right people, they're just not possible. You know, for me, there's a chap called Michael Watt. I don't know if you've come across him. Um, he founded a business called CSI, became a sports media rights expert. They did the advice for Sansar to create Super Rugby in 1995, $555 US million TV deal. And he was the uh, CEO and chairman of that business. Ian Frickberg worked with him. You'll know Jared, of course, mm. and that business held the Premier League's worldwide TV rights for 10 years, Cricket Australia. I mean, the list goes on. And he, he is, he got kicked out of school at 15 for being a little shit. Um, he's got lots of personality. Um, he's in his 70s now, very, very smart and creative. But, you know, the one thing, you know, with him is that, and so in 2003, I got invited to, he, he held a summer party um, this country pile in West Sussex. So I went down to it with my now wife and we were very excited to be, to be down there. And we were guests of Zinzan Brooks. And, um, you know, he basically said, I'm going to mentor you, which, you know, he didn't really know what that meant, nor did I, but basically it's meant that over sort of 20 years, he's given me extremely direct feedback, which is not necessarily repeatable on the show, which, you know, it's just, you know, if it's a bad idea, he lets you know it's a good idea. And the other thing, most importantly, he's just like, go, 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 go. Don't stop. Push, 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 push. And, uh, I've, you know, I've really enjoyed um, having someone of his achievements say, come on, don't limit yourself. Muscle up. Keep going. Push, push. Persist, persist, persist. And I found that really valuable. How important is that when you... You know, when you are, you know, sort of being encouraged to just push, 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 uh, not being afraid to make a mistake. 
Well, I think you learn more from your mistakes, right? So, I mean, some of my key learnings have definitely come from glorious failure. And, you know, it's the, the, the feelings that come with that are pretty motivating not to be in that position again. So you do, you do learn a lot from failings. But, you know, I guess if you get your planning right, um, you can minimise, you take calculated risks as opposed to just throwing darts and hoping for the best. And so I guess that's one of the things that I've learned along the way is, you know, if you're going to shoot for the moon, at least have a plan that is half cogent and sensible with sequential steps, then you, and you might just get there um, as opposed to blast off and see how you go. But as I mentioned earlier, um, many Australian fans will know you as part owner and, and recently departed chairman of Melbourne Storm, uh, as well as chairman of the Sunshine Coast Lightning. When you bought the Storm, though, I think you initially referred to that syndicate of owners as the Alliance of the Insane. What was happening at that stage? Well, um, it, I guess that's an example of jumping off a cliff and flapping your arms and hoping you can fly. Um, so myself, uh, Jerry Ryan, who's I'm sure you've heard across, he's been a very good benefactor for sport in Australia. And then Matt Tripp, who's kind of you know one of the smartest guys I've come across. So it's and then Mike Watt came in initially, and, and Matt Tripp eventually uh, bought him out. So there's um, there were, until recently there were three of us, and basically Jerry Ryan has a strong sort of love affair with the club that goes back 20 years. Matt, like myself, was naive and, and aspirational. And so we all just kind of jumped in and mucked in, um, you know, coming from London, having no real understanding of, you know, I guess the challenges of being in Victoria as an NRL club, 17 professional sports team in a city of uh, 5 million people, you know, like naivety is just an absolute blessing sometimes and, and stupidity. And so, you know what, we just kind of ripped in. And, and the one thing we did was before we signed the dotted line, we, wrote a five-year business plan for the club, attached it to the shareholders' agreement and said, this is how we're going to judge ourselves. And, you know, I'm pleased to say we kind of we hit, hit the boxes along the way and achieved, achieved the outcome we wanted. So you are sometimes, I think, referred to uh, as the guy who saved the Melbourne Storm. What, what did that leadership look like at that stage? What did, you, what did you need to do? What were the hoops that you got in and really had to jump through straight away? Um, well, look, actually, we obviously, we bought the club off the Years Corp, who were fantastic. So we had really great access during diligence. And, um, I, you know, I think we had, we had a pretty clear plan on what we wanted to do. We forget understanding the macro challenges of competing in, in Victoria for another day. We had Ferrari on the field and we had a Ford Falcon in the front office. And we needed to try and, um, you know, build another Ferrari out of the Ford Falcon. And, and things like it was kind of... Um, you know, it was over. It was overly corporate for a small, nimble business. So, in a business of 55 staff, excluding football, there were 11 general managers, and that's that just you know, like a, and it's an average portfolio of five each, you know, and that, that didn't seem necessary. So, we kind of changed the structure. We brought in a new CEO, Mark Evans, who's obviously now running Twiggy. I can't call him Twiggy anymore. Can I? Andrew Forrest, Empire <laughs> Rugby. Um, he is. Um, and uh, Dave Donahue came in as COO, and we brought in a chap called Ben Dunn uh, from London, who was the commercial director for the NFL in the UK, down to be the commercial director. So again, right people, right jobs, simple plan, revisit, review, refine, keep going. Because Clubland is a very, I mean, that requires that sort of, um, 
I guess, uh, the continual improvement that Bellamy talks of because it, there are no big wins in Clubland, right? It's just just keep going, small wins, small wins. And if you do enough, you accumulate enough, then you get your noses in front. And that's really what it was. It's a grind. You just got to keep at it. And if you do that, you can win. And, um, and all the while, it helps when you've got a competitive team on the field. I was going to say, as soon as you put together the the uh, leadership team off the field, gee, you had a good leadership team on the field. It was always bound to be successful. Yeah, I think so. Look, you know, Matt Tripp, Jerry Ryan, super smart people, wonderful asset to have them on the club. Um, and then you go, well, new CEO, new COO, new chief commercial officer. Um, you know, like there aren't many more important clients to make in a club, you know. So you've got continuous director of football tech, You've got a continuous coach, tech, continuous captain, tech, a couple of continuous goats surrounding him, and and a board that's joined up. Um, you know, it's amazing what you can do. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You were very vocal during uh, Jack DeBellin's challenge to the NRL's uh, stand-down policy, and it should be acknowledged at this stage that it, you know the league continues to work pretty hard on what's happening off the field. But how do off-field indiscretions in rugby league impact the business of of clubs in terms of trying to attract money, sponsors, corporate partners? Oh, materially, I think. You know, we were in the market looking for a shirt sponsor at the time, and, and you know, we just won a premiership. The club was in great order. We lost the winner. We won a premiership. And we just lost in the grand final. So, record TV audiences. The all the metrics you would think that determine a positive outcome, and, and literally, we were getting turned away door after door after door. And I think that's not to say that Jack DeBellin doesn't deserve his day in court, and I hope he's innocent. But the positive media coverage for the sport when that's not hanging over your head is a factor higher uh, than if that, you know, people of that ilk are around your sport. So these are serious crimes. They should be, you know, they should be determined under a no-fault stand-down on full pay, go and resolve it. So, look, I think it's important to preserve the reputation of the game. I think particularly in the space of women, um, who determines where their kids go and play sport? You know, almost universally, it's mothers who have a really big influence in that outcome. And so if you want a sport to have kids play it, then you need to look like a sport that cares about women. So that's not to say that Jack doesn't have rights and he'll have his day in court. And, you know, as I said, that will play out as it plays out. But I think all sports is a really important job to preserve the image of your sport. And if you do that, then you can preserve the income levels for the other 479 professionals that aren't facing major court allegations. And do you believe that, uh, as I said, you know, league continues to try to get better in that area? Um, you're a powerful voice in the game still. Has it done enough? Uh, is it heading in the right direction? Look, I think it, it could always do better. Um, but I do think it's heading in the right direction. I know that the issues are taken very seriously at the NRL. Um, 
you know, at the end of the day, they got 480 young men um, who are, you know, in, in the prime demographic of society to have trouble at this point in their life. Uh, and the challenge for them is to understand that they are subject to a greater level of scrutiny than others at the same age and juncture in their life. And if they can understand that early, they'll avoid it. And of course, your other great love is uh, is rugby union. As mentioned, you've worked for a long time uh, as uh, a client of the New Zealand Rugby Union, or you've had New Zealand Rugby Union as a client. Uh, you've managed countless All Blacks. Uh, two years ago, I think it was, you joined the New Zealand Rugby Union Strategy Committee. And now, um, recently, they're representative on the board of World Rugby. What are your top priorities there? I think in the near term, constitutional reform is right up there. I think the way the game is governed is hamstringing itself. So I think I know that constitutional reform is on the agenda for Bill Beaumont. He's put it out there. They've formed a committee and and the work will be being done. And they've got some very smart people involved with that, um, including an ex-Governor General of Australia. Uh, And then clearly... uh, the state of the game from a finances point of view. The game is in a perilous state. Uh, having COVID sort of arrive midwinter uh, or mid-season for the game globally is a real challenge and will put a real dent in the economics of the sport. So working through that, I know that greater alignment is talked of. If at the end of the day as a first step, we can create defined windows for the club game, and define windows for the international game and move July to October, that would be a reasonable starting point. Clear Air will sort of provide a window for both games to flourish, club and international. And then I think, for me, um, the rules require some sort of um, review. I, I'm not sure people have a clear view on what the game should look like. And so there is consultation to be done. It's been delayed by COVID. But, but I, I'm hopeful that people actually, in addition to talking to people within the game, actually going to talk to fans and they're going to talk to broadcasters um, because rugby runs the risk of losing relevance globally and, and off the back of a hugely successful tournament in Japan, the Rugby World Cup in Japan, that would be a huge miss for the sport. So it's just a bit busy. It's too many pauses in time and it's very complex trying to understand what's going on at the breakdown on any given day or, or what the crown penalties are for, quite frankly. So if we can declutter the game, have the ball and play more and bring a bit more fatigue back in and more space, you know, I'd argue we'd have a better game with more interest globally. In terms of a global season, how important is is that to the future of the game? Look, if we had a magic wand, the global season would be phenomenal. But I, you know, I was chatting to the chap at the Irish Rugby Union last night and either we move to a summer game, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, imagine playing in Melbourne and January at 42 degrees or whatever the, the thermometer gets up to. But we're asking the French and English clubs to move to a summer sport. Now, I think there is an appetite for that in England, but I'm just not sure there is in France and Italy who, who have similar you know, temperature highs and challenges like playing through August. Would be when Everyone's on holiday for the entire month would really put the sport under a bit of pressure, I suspect. And... and um, yeah, the, the French final has happened on the same day for 100 years and, and trying to get people to move that, it's a pretty fraught proposition um, and, and possibly even unfair to ask them to do it. So, again, I think if we can get to a defined period where club rugby happens here and international rugby happens here, 
clubs know that they've got their players unfettered and international players know that they can play without being blackballed by their clubs or asked not to or to give up money. Um, you know, it would be a good thing. And clearly that would mean moving the World Cup to that October, November window, which I think could, you know, could be a real positive because all the club rugby can happen before and, you know, off we go. So as a starting point, I guess that's what I'm hoping for. Um, it just feels, you know, the, the desire for the French and the Italians to, to move to playing over August when literally there is nothing happening in those countries feels like a long part at this point. Yeah, seems to be a, a lot of stumbling blocks. You've, uh, or you are in a quite unique position being so ingrained now with New Zealand rugby, but but also having one foot here in Australia. So you've got a pretty good sense of uh, where we sit in Australia with, with rugby um, and you can see our challenges. Um, where do you think the Australian game is at at the moment? And flowing on from that, how can the Kiwis help if they want to? I think the other one, the, the second question is above my pay grade because I'm just... <laughs> I'm just one of many on the board, but as it relates to the challenges in Australia, look, I don't think many people understand outside of Australia, the competitive context in which rugby operates in this market. The, the twin challenges of AFL and NRL for a winter code, given you know the size of resourcing, I mean, I think the AFL generates about 3.3 billion over a five year cycle and the NRL 2.7 billion. I think Rugby Australia is kind of around the 700, 750 million mark. So, you know, there's a factor more amount of money being spent on the game by each of those codes. And then you've got a four teams currently domestically in the same competition. So there's, you know, there isn't that sort of 16 or 18 team domestic comp that just takes control of our screens for six months. So there's, a, you know, the, the, the quest for relevance is harder because you're just not front of mind in the consciousness, you're not as well funded. Um, and certainly both sports are attacking your talent at a young age. And it seems to me that both sports, both the AFL and the NRL pay kids younger. And as a result, rugby loses a few players, but on that transition from sort of pseudo amateurism to professionalism. So real challenge, um, but there are opportunities. Um, you've got a Lions tour coming here in 2025 and all things being equal, you know, you're, you're in a good position to secure a World Cup for 2027. And I think that's rugby's point of difference. The international game being, you know, the real sort of differentiator. The Lions tours are special, as you will well know. And a World Cup is, you know, having been to Tokyo and Japan last year, as I'm sure you were, Nick, it's a phenomenal experience. And I think that is a way that rugby can make some money and, and, and also claw back some hearts and minds. Um, but at the moment, they've got to kind of join up the professional and the amateur games, which remain bifurcated. I think that's it's not beyond the wit of man. Uh, and then, you know, some good performances from Super Rugby teams and the Wallabies. I think Dave Rennie will be a good addition uh, to the coaching setup. You know, new voice, new change, new opportunity. And clearly, you've got an under-20s team here that did really well last year. So there's some good young kids coming through. So um, as it relates to... You know what does how does New Zealand help Australia? I don't really know is the answer. I think there's a willingness to. What needs to be settled at a Sanzo level first is what's the shape of rugby going to be next year. Once everyone's clear on that, then I think New Zealand and Australia can have talks. But you know, COVID's driving that. Nothing else. It's 
Yeah, it's going to be impossible to deliver Super Rugby as we know it in 2021. So what do Australia and New Zealand do? And is that for 2021 or how does that shake out? So it's going to be fascinating to watch. What's your view on that? Would you like to see a, a Trans-Tasman Super Rugby competition? Is that is that where the future lies? Um, as it relates to New Zealand, I think it's prudent for New Zealand to plan for what happens if there is another wave and the Trans-Tasman bubble isn't a real thing. I think both countries have to plan for well, what happens if the shit hits the fan? We actually just need to put on a show. And what we know is that we can control our own markets and we can get something up. That's not first prize, that's kind of survive. Uh, and then, you know, what does Thrive look like? You know, there's no doubt that more games in the right time zones and with less travel is a good thing. Um, and and, and that, that would be my hope for 2021. I think it's important to invite South Africa back in for future years and then Argentina have been good partners, but um, you know, if they're having talks up in Europe, they may not want to come back. But for 2021, I think, you know, the best case outcome is that New Zealand and Australia do something together. From a business point of view, and, and you know, you know, how how sponsorship sells into, you know, certain competitions and how attractive they are. Does the old model, you know, the model that we've come to know with South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, does that still work? It suffers from a lack of identity and it suffers from a lack of consistency. So there have been many attempts in the past to draw, you know, a sort of unifying sponsor and look and feel of the competition across all the markets. Um, but there, you know, a lot of the companies in South Africa are kind of unique to South Africa uh, and that's, you know, part of that country's history. So I think uh, maybe next year, if it's even if it's just for one year there is an opportunity to have a sort of a, a clean look and feel so you actually feel like you're watching the same tournament in different markets and, and so you know I, I, and it's not it's not Sanzar's fault I don't think they're given a lot of power uh, by the unions to to deliver and uh, you know I, I would certainly recommend that whoever runs Super Rugby and, the, and it's Kelly Sanzar that they should you know have more power to deliver um, you know, a product that looks joined up and looks like, you know, the Champions League or the Heineken Cup or, or a World Cup, you know, sponsors across all markets. Um, it might require people to give a little to get some over time, but, you know, it'll be a good step in the right direction. The other thing that's um, really sort of taking up a lot of headspace at the moment here in Australia is the financial issues that the game is suffering with the storm experience in mind. Um is it possible that we might see more private ownership of uh, Super Rugby teams? Is that an answer, if not the answer? Look, if you provided the right platform for private ownership in, in Super Rugby, then I'm sure it would be welcomed. And by that, I mean, you know, long-term licences, visibility over competition structures, revenue share models, and all the things that you need to understand before you would invest. Look, you know, if you look around the world, it's hard to argue that, private investment into sporting teams has been bad for sport. Uh, you know, the most successful leagues around the world are driven by capitalism uh, with, with all of its warts uh, and hairs. But, you know, um, you know uh, they, they have driven change and, and professionalised the leagues. So would that be a positive for Super Rugby across all the countries that participate in it? Yeah, probably is. I mean, South Africa's got a couple of teams that are privately owned. New Zealand has moved slightly that way. The teams are kind of owned under license, um, where they're part owned by the provincial unions and part owned by individuals. So 
the game hasn't quite taken that full step. I and mean, maybe, maybe this is an opportunity to explore that further. I would certainly recommend uh, we look at it and um, you know, provide teams and owners of those teams with a license that justifies the investment. And what about on a grander scale? Because there's also been talk of you know large private equity firms circling Australian rugby for for a slice of the game at a national level, maybe even a, you know, a, a revenue share from the World Cup if they were to underwrite the game, you know, heading forward, that sort of thing. Can that work when you talk about national bodies um, selling part of the, themselves? Um, I'm nervous as it relates to the national teams, you know, selling, you know, forever revenues for a 12 times multiple, for example, doesn't feel like good business in the near term. Uh, I think there is a role for private equity in sport. Um, yeah, the World Cup is one example. I think that, that could help Australia, for example. If they could help Australia secure a World Cup on terms agreeable to Australia, that would be good. So, yeah, I think there is a role for private equity, but um, for national not-for-profit governing bodies, I'm, I'm, I'm yet to be convinced how that can fit neatly into a private equity model. But, you know, eyes are open, ears are open. You must have been in similar situations many times over the years where, you, you know, you've been a leader in a business with structural challenges, I guess, the storm, perhaps when you first went in. What are the basics that you need to get right? When you first walk in the door, uh, if you're taking over a company, what are, the, what are the basics you need to get right? I think you've got to understand the numbers. What is the true position of the business? Um, people are important, so you've got to get the right people in the right jobs. So structure who's doing what and what was the old structure, what is the new structure. Um, you got to get, again, simple things, but you've got to have a plan. What is our plan? What are we trying to do and how do we measure success? Because if you, if you don't write plans down and don't stick to them, then it's hard to tell you people that have done a good job. And, and plans can't just be profits or losses or, or whatever they are. So I, again, know the numbers, have the right people doing the right jobs, make a plan. Along the way though is, you get scud missiles whether they're called COVID or gfc's which change the plan and that requires a bit of adaptability it requires flexibility you've got to think laterally and you've got to move quickly um and you know that's all part of the rich tapestry of being in a business um you get dealt some good cards and you have some great wins along the way you get you get dealt some shy cards along the way <laughs> and you've got to deal with those cards as humanely and, and as fairly as you can and so for example, at Storm, one of the things I'm proud of is that we haven't made anyone redundant. So, you know, we put people, uh, everyone went on to JobKeeper that was eligible. And then in April, 50% pay, May, 75% pay, and then June, back to 100% pay. We've kept all jobs open. Now, some people may want to leave, they may not, but that's entirely up to them. So our, our first priority was to make sure that the people that needed the money could go home, pay the mortgage, and put food on the table. I think at the end of the day, if you want people to go above and beyond for the business, they need to feel that you're doing the same for them. And so that, you know, that's one of the things is show people that you care and then don't talk it, live it. And um, that's something that we've tried quite hard to do. But you seem to have so much going on. I don't imagine you're the sort of bloke that sits on your hands for, for too long. And I know you're just embarking on that role for New Zealand rugby at world rugby level. But... What's on the agenda for you? What do you What do you still have to do in in your working life? What 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 are some of your ambitions? Um, at the moment, so my day job was I run a little sports agency. Um, 
it's it's kind of small by design and it's a sort of a crack team of 10 people and we're focused on an opportunity that we've identified which is about helping international teams and federations crack new markets so one of the things i've done along the way is take the all blacks to play those international games up in the states uh, and it's very expensive for a governing body or federation to fund a team to put on games once every two years in the US, but it's important for them to be there because if you're not there, you're not relevant. So if you if you want you know, New Zealand, for example, New Zealand rugby, it's in a small little country at the arse end of the world. If you want to have meaningful corporate conversations with global brands, you have to be present to be relevant. And so part of what we're doing is putting on events for them in UK, Asia, Middle East, and the US uh, outside the world rugby calendar. So that they can be present and they can and they can plan it and they can engage with sponsors in advance host people show them what the brand is about and try to secure long-term partnerships so we're working with major league baseball we're trying to get nhl down to australia uh, and we're working with a couple of leading football clubs we brought brazil argentina down to the mcg so we've got sort of half a dozen key clients and we're kind of um, focusing on you know on the elite brands of world sport because at the end of the day um, that's where the interest is and that's where the value is. So that, that, that's my day job. And then I have another little um, enterprise. I've started making beer. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. You're living every blo- every Australian bloke's dream. You own a brewery. Yeah, my, my wife uh, does continue to mock me around that. But um, yeah, we've got a little brewery called Brick Lane Brewing. Spent 17 years in London. So it's named after a nice little part of East London where you pop out for a beer and a curry after work and... Um, yeah, Tim Horan's a shareholder, which is good. Dan Carter's a shareholder, which is good. Um, and we had a couple of people on there, an ex-MD of Lion Nathan in New Zealand and one of the founders of Independent Liquor, whose job is to save us from ourselves. Um, but yeah, we're, we're making beer uh, and having a bit of fun doing it too. Indeed. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. Do you ever uh, have time to sit and reflect on how far you've come from the kid, as I understand it, who used to work as a casual stop-go guy on roadworks in Palmerston North when he was growing up. You've come a fair way. Yeah, and I could only get that job because the people that owned the company were my next-door neighbours. So <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of been the story of my life, nepotism 101. No, look, um, yeah, I, I, I probably don't, actually. I don't have a very good rear-view mirror. Um, I'm sure there'll be time for that at some point, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not the best at smelling the roses. It's kind of head down, bum up, new challenge, let's go. Um, and hopefully I can get better at that as, as we go along. Bart Campbell, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate it. And you suspect there might be an entertaining biography in there at some stage as well. Who knows? Bart Campbell on this week's Playmakers Playbook. I love that line. At the end of the day, if you want people to go above and beyond for the business... They need to feel you'll do the same for them. Show people you care. Don't talk it. Live it. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.